Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Todd Rucker about second language writing programs and classes, meeting the linguistic needs of students, and supporting second language writers. Todd Rucker is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Composition and Director of Core Writing at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has taught a variety of courses, including first-year composition, professional technical writing, cross-cultural communication, and the politics of writing instruction. His work regularly crosses disciplinary boundaries, and he has published extensively on the transitions of Latinx writers from high school to college. He has received a variety of awards and grants, such as a Fulbright Scholar Grant, and has published articles in respected composition, education, and applied linguistics journals, including TESOL Quarterly, College Composition and Communication, Journal of Hispanic Higher Education, Critical Inquiry and Language Studies, and Writing Program Administration. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Second Language Writing and has published a monograph and four edited collections. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. What are some challenges that writing programs face in serving second language writers? And what are some policies, practices, or procedures that can help overcome those challenges? Well, one of the, the first things that comes up is um, placing students and identifying students. Um, there's been a fair amount of work on, you know, la- the labels, you know, students use to identify themselves is pretty complex. I think back to Ortmeier Hooper's piece in 2008 that's been pretty influential in the field. I've done some work on that. Um, there's been some additional work in the Journal of Second Language Writing. Some students identify with the ESL label or the non-native speaker label but then other students find that pretty problematic. Like we have a lot of students who, you know, grew up in the U.S. speaking multiple languages and don't fit neatly in any one category, but might be served well by a teacher who has training to, you know, to better support um, their language needs along with their their writing needs. And so kind of, you know, figuring out, you know, how to um, get those students in the best classes for their needs. And that kind of trickles into how we how we label the classes themselves you know, then what kind of placement mechanisms we use. So another thing, you know, th- another challenge that that comes up is just finding qualified instructors and teachers to work with second language writers. And um, our institution, it's been traditionally run and taught out of the intensive English program. And, you know, they, they have always haven't had the fund- funding they've needed to support, you know, and pay full-time instructors. And so it's often been taught by part-time adjunct labor, by the nature of the, you know, ex- Exploitation in those positions are distracted, you know, teaching other classes might not have the um, second language writing expertise um, that we need um, to better serve these students. Just in general, it's, you know, it's, you know, ideally, and, you know, various people have written about this, like instructors of second language writers should, you know, ideally have experience and training in, you know, in both kind of TESOL and applied linguistics and writing studies. Often we find that, you know, people have one or the other expertise. And so if they're just within TESOL, they don't necessarily know how to teach a writing class, you know, with this, you know, and, you know, provide students with that meta knowledge about writing and the writing process, you know, in order to, you know, transfer that knowledge into other classes that we, you know, find so common and prevalent in terms of writing instruction today. Um, you know, understanding of genre theories as well, for instance. On the other hand, you know, within mainstream composition programs, there's this often not adequate training. And, you know, I know there's been a lot, in, you know, of work on, you know, translingualism and everything. And there's a lot there about recognizing and valuing language diversity. But then um, sometimes, it, you know, 
feels very theoretically focused and idealistic to some extent. And so people aren't giving, getting training and, you know, helping them progress um, in terms of, you know, in terms of their linguistic needs. And so, yeah, it's a relatively small and there's, you know, pr- few programs, and, you know, who can prepare people within that. Like, you know, ASU is one, obviously, with um, people like Paul and uh, established um, second language writing program. And they have a dedicated second language writing graduate seminars there. A lot of places don't have that. And so um, people are kind of left to get that expertise through, you know, conferences, through reading other means, or, you know, maybe the occasional faculty member they can work with on their thesis or dissertation. So you're talking about meeting the linguistic needs of students. For those unfamiliar with the second language writing context, I was hoping maybe you could talk more about what those linguistic needs are. Yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, our students end up being really diverse in terms of, you know, you might have international students who've, you know, gotten a lot of formal training in like the linguistic aspects of English and so can articulate grammar rules and things like that while you have students growing up in the U.S. You know, just kind of grew up in our, you know, underfunded school system and haven't had necessarily adequate support in either, you know, either um, language that they speak or any of the languages that they speak and are just kind of have a intuitive knowledge of the language and might be you know very fluent in spoken English but then haven't had the training and support in written English for instance and so I mean yeah so I think you know having you know people you know who understand the differences between the students and you know how and how you know how to scaffold you know assignments to make sure people feel like they have you know the 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 support and the time needed to to succeed alongside all the other students and then also provide, you know, language feedback. You know, people like Dana Ferris have written a lot about, you know, how to provide, you know, feedback in a way that's useful and meaningful for students. Like, you know, I've seen, you know, instructors, you know, on different extremes, like they mark every error on a paper and we know that that's not helpful or accurate for students. It just kind of overwhelms and demoralizes um, and they don't learn much from that. On the other hand, we have people who you know, resist any kind of correction and teaching of, you know, this quote-unquote standardized, you know, privileged variety of English um, at all. And I think that does students a disservice. Um, and so, yeah, they, you know, they just don't have the knowledge to, you know, help the students see, you know, what's wrong with this sentence. They just, you know, they'll, they'll give, you know, they'll give advice like, oh, just read your paper out loud. You'll notice awkward spots. And, you know, don't, don't necessarily have that intuitive knowledge where they can read their paper out loud and notice those spots. Um, and so being able to identify, you know, things like, again, this is, you know, what Ferris has, you know, talked about, but like those kind of, those, you know, rule governed errors and maybe those non rule governed, like treatable and non treatable, I think she called it, like, um, where some, you know, just take a long time, like articles, okay, you know, that, you know, they're going to take a long time. Don't, you know, spend a ton of time trying to focus, you know, a student, you know, and learning articles unless they're really advanced. Uh, but things like verb tenses and the way, way sentences are structured, you know, some things like that can be um, pretty rule driven. And if someone has the knowledge to explain that to students, then students can pick that up more easily. How can writing programs help support second language writers' transition to college? So I think in this kind of this first point kind of connects with the last question. But like one of the challenges we face is administrators always like to increase class sizes. Unfortunately, we've had an administration here recently that has lowered our course caps across all our writing classes to 19, you know, which is more in line of what is recommended by C's 
Um, but, you know, I know the norm is more like 24 or 25 at most institutions. And But for second language writers, they, get, they need even a you know smaller class cap, and that's recommended in the C statement on second language writers and writing, I believe, at 15. And so, um, so that's always a challenge. So, yeah, 19 is kind of seen as, you know, pretty exceptional compared to a lot of programs. But then, you know, pushing down to 15, like, I think they're useful, and I use them a lot. But then, you know, policymakers, administrators often kind of ignore them. Like, we try to stand on them, but at the end of the day, you know, they're going to make decisions based on their budgets and their priorities. So, yeah, so I think, you know, class sizes, you know, just to provide, you know, that those different levels of support um, because, you know, second language writer literacy backgrounds are more, compl- more complex, and they, you know, need, they benefit from additional um, time working on their writing and additional feedback. Um, the way things are structured, especially, you know, if someone's teaching, you know, 100 students or more a semester, you know, giving those um, everyone the time they need, the feedback they need, obviously, is, is problematic at that point. And so in terms of, so yeah, so, you know, lowering class sizes would be a big one. And I think, you know, in terms of like thinking about transition to college, like that first year, students are often placed into these large lecture hall courses. And so they're coming out of these high schools with, you know, you know, very small comparatively class sizes and they know everybody and they come into this overwhelming college environment. The writing classes are really unique in that first year in um, terms of giving like a more personalized experience. And that's something that, you know, just hearing from students and when we survey students, you know, find, they find that valuable. Like, you know, the retention research that I've written about, you know, a fair amount too, you know, has always talked about personal connections with students and teachers and it's um, professors and it's hard to do that in a big lecture hall. That if, you know, we kind of touched on earlier, but, you know, learn about the students' backgrounds, their literacy backgrounds, what kind of schools are they coming out of, what kind of writing have they done, you know, are you serving mostly international L2 students, are you serving resident, you know, what are their language backgrounds, how can, I, you know, how can we as a program be built on those um, language backgrounds as a resource, and so, like, for instance, I did my PhD in UT El Paso, and, you know, the vast majority of students there spoke Spanish, and so, you know, so then it was, it was relatively easy to tailor, you know, have assignments where I could ask, you know, students who had that fluency to draw on their Spanish literacy background. Just in terms of supporting their transition, like, I think it's important that we offer a variety of courses as well, our programs. And so the students, they don't just have to choose, you know, between, you know, that we put our second language students into the second language section, and then we have, you know, just, you know, quote unquote, mainstream section, but like, so here, like we have, you know, a section with extra lab support for, you know, traditionally, you know, have been known as like developmental writers. And so we end up, you know, having a lot of second language writers maybe who grew up in the U.S. placed into those classes. And so, but the important part is that these classes are all credit bearing. Um, and so, you know, I think that's important that so they're kind of equivalent. They just have, you know, extra language, you know, extra support. Um, that the students need. So they're completing their 101 requirement, you know, alongside all the other students, but just in a little more specialized class. I think it's also important that we have, you know, diverse staff and teaching staff, like who reflect, you know, the diversity of our students. So like, you know, students coming in, they can see that, you know, their teacher, you know, looks like them, you know, talks like them. And um, so trying to diversify our teaching staff as much as possible, just, you know, give students that extra level of motivation when, especially when they've been told so long that they're not qualified, they're not college material that they can see here is, you know, my teacher, you know, she has, you know, a graduate degree, you know, has this expertise. And so I can do that too. And then just collaborate with other people is a big point I always make as well. 
Um, you know, like working with your student support services at your institution, collaborating with local high schools to, you know, try to figure out how to align your curriculum. You mentioned an assignment that you used at UT El Paso that allowed you to draw on students' rich linguistic histories and habits. Can you talk more about this assignment? Um, and so that was kind of, we were doing, it was a kind of, you know, a mini lesson leading up to, I think, a genre analysis assignment. So we were doing kind of like a mini rhetorical um, analysis and kind of especially focused on kind of how the writers are situated. So I had them, I picked like three news articles and they would choose two of them and compare them. And so, you know, look at, you know, how the author was on like the same topic and how the author was situated and how they were writing about the topic. And so one of those three news articles is the option was um, a Mexican newspaper. I think it was the Juarez newspaper. And so one of them, one of them was completely in Spanish. And so I did have a couple of students who just weren't used to that. And you know, came to me like, how am I supposed to do this assignment? I don't speak Spanish. And I'm like, well, then you, you know, you know, so then you do these other two, you know, you're a little more restricted since you're not bilingual. And so again, you know, little moves like that, that instead of always focusing on, you know, our bilingual students as, you know, having deficits, figuring out how to position them as having, you know, that asset, they have access to more information and more languages. In your co-edited book, The Politics of English, Second Language Writing Assessment in Global Contexts, you focus on high-stakes assessment and its impact on second-language writers and writing instructors. Can you talk more about the pressures of assessment and what that means for second-language writers and teachers? And one point, you know, I've made in that book and I've made in, you know, other work is that um, teachers have it a lot harder in the K-12 context, like in terms of, you know, mandated state assessments that are very problematic, but, you know, they're very biased towards, you know, written about like the... the one of the recent Common Core exams, even though it was designed in 2010, 2011, 2012, like it was still very biased towards white, you know, text, you know, white authors, and it was um, sort of biased against students, like you know, based in New Mexico, for instance, um, and privileged students in other parts of the country. And so, um, and the and and those can be used pretty punitively, blocking students from graduation, you know, reforming schools. And there's been a bit of a backlash. So I think you know that. That's starting. There's some hope for that to start to get better. Um, and they've been using that to evaluate teachers increasingly as well. And so, like, you know, I did research in New Mexico um, where I used to live. And they had, you know, one of the toughest teacher evaluation systems in the country for a while. And, you know, schools were, you know, nervous because, you know, their, their, their school grade, teachers' individual grades would go down if they were working with these immigrant students who were just here in the U.S. for a few years. And, you know, were already asked to be taking these high high school level tests after I think two years, even though they had just been learning English for two years. You know, so, so there's definitely like a, at the college level in general, we have more, you know, there's kind of, you know, more pressures with accreditation now to like, you know, assess, you know, learning in our classes and things like that. But by and large, you know, as much as, you know, university faculty complain about, you know, assessment mandates and pressures, they're very pretty benign compared comparatively. Um, and that, you know, that may change over time, you know, we'll see, but we have more freedom. I think the biggest thing for like the students is like, you know, the college entrance exams and placement processes, you know, are pretty problematic. Had a lot of people talk, you know, write against, you know, the problems with timed writing with automated, you know, essay scoring where all these major test makers are moving towards. Um, so, you know, things like the ACCUPLATES or things like the TOEFL, you know, we, we talk about that in the book a fair amount. Like they don't give an accurate assessment of a student's uh, writing abilities, especially as you know a second language writer. And so you know that's why I'm <clears throat> continue to be a big fan of like the directed self placement 
um, systems, and that's something we're um, moving towards here. And for, and for again, we had kind of you know administrative decision not to require ACT and SAT scores, and so you know we're gonna we're giving students the opportunity to kind of select into their classes, and they can still use those test scores if they want, and they have them, but um, they're not going to be required to do that. And so I'm kind of excited about that shift away from test scores. And I think that's happening more and more. We've seen that in the California schools, I think, um, which, you know, is happening at a bigger scale, more embrace of directed self-placement, or at least multiple measures where you're not just depending on like a 30-minute time essay. You know, one thing that's, you know, coming up like is um, teacher evaluation challenges. Um, again, we have a lot more autonomy in our departments you know, at, at universities. Um, but, you know, even though we talk about the biases and the problems with them, you know, you know, I just keep, I see, you know, evaluation committees, you know, at the department and the college level, they always fall back against these student evaluation numbers. And so that, you know, that is something we have to continue to work to move away from, you know, just because those can sometimes be like a popularity contest, you know, like easier instructors and professors can get higher scores. If you're teaching a certain class that's not required, you're obviously, you're naturally, you're probably going to get higher scores than that. You meant, you know, biases against women, people of color. And then also, um, and this is a book that I'm co-editing with my former graduate student, Maria Tepsura, um, biases against non-native English speaking teachers of English. And so we have instances, you know, chapters in there where authors are talking about, you know, end of semester evaluations, like this class shouldn't be taught by, you know, a second language, you know, English speaker or non-native speaker. Um, and then that reflects down in their numbers. So even if they're perfectly qualified, you know, students just read into that and we'll see those negatively. So we got to make sure we're evaluating our teachers fair, fairly. They're not being based on, you know, their, their language backgrounds either. People have written about this as well as just that pressure of assigning grades to students and kind of being fair. Like I get a question, you know, a lot from new, our newer teachers, like how do I grade, you know, a second language writer? And, you know, like while being fair to all the other students, do I grade up at the same level? You know, is that, you know, is that the objective way to do it? And as we kind of know, like, you know, this idea of, you know, everyone's at the same level and treat everyone, you know, equally isn't fair. You know, it can, you know, it's kind of perpetuate racist you know, grading and assessment practices and, you know, people like us out in a way, you know, have, have, have written a lot about that, for instance, you know, treat and assess my second language writers differently, you know, focus more on the quality of their writing and their effort, you know, along the lines of that labor-based grading um, practice rather than, you know, just based on linguistic error. And so if I do grade, you know, you know, have a linguistic element in my grades, but always recommend that be pretty low, you know, look around 10%. Um, of the final grade, whereas maybe in a more traditional writing classroom, especially maybe at the high school level, you know, linguistic errors may be considered more like 40%, 50%. This is my last question. How do you negotiate language differences? What practices do you use as a teacher to help you negotiate linguistic varieties and differences in writing classrooms? Yeah, so one thing, you know, I'm happy to be proud to be trilingual, having learned different languages. And so I, you know, try to make that clear to, with my students and, and make, you know, recognize that that's valuable. And I also acknowledge that me being bilingual or trilingual has different connotations in a larger society than, um, you know, an immigrant, you know, because for an immigrant, it's often portrayed as a deficit. And so I think it's important that writing teachers, you know, take the time to learn other languages so they know, you know, I guess teachers of second language writers, so they know kind of what their students are going through and how hard it is, like, even though I speak these other languages, like I can't write, you know, 
I'm hard pressed to write, you know, in Spanish at a college level, definitely not in Czech. In Spanish, I did take a college level writing class. And so that was kind of a challenge for me. And so I think it's important that we have that firsthand experience of learning other languages and especially writing in other languages. And so we can kind of understand what our, what our students themselves go through. Um, and then I'm also conscious of, you know, positioning, lang- you know, different languages and language diversity in a, in a, as an asset in the language I use in the classroom and assignment design. And so, you know, I was, you know, when I, I'll use, you know, the term second language writer, you know, in scholarship, or, you know, I edit the journal of second language writing, co-edit the journal. And so I, I use it in context like that. But in my classroom, I would like to talk about bilingual, multilingual, and, you know, kind of lean towards that kind of labeling in like classes as well. So any kind of student-facing language, you know, making sure we're using um, as asset-based language as possible. You know, when we're doing the research paper, I'll, like, you know, I'll I'll add a line in my assignment, or I'll say it in class, and I'll say it in class. Like, you know, for those of you who are bilingual or trilingual, you're welcome to bring in texts in other languages. Like, you have an asset. You know, you have access to more information because of that. And so, and so then, yeah, I'll work in language like that in my assignments as well. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, one question that comes up then, like if I have invite students to analyze other texts, bring in other texts, you know, what do I do if I don't speak those languages? And, you know, the biggest thing, like, you know, to some extent, I try to just defer, you know, trust students and then also kind of, you know, draw on, you know, where needed, maybe translation tools to help them. Like, you know, even though it's not perfect, things like Google Translate has come a long way. And kind of alongside that, we talk about footnoting and the politics of footnoting. Like I always push for them to have the original, you know, the original language in the text rather than just give me a translation. And so, and then footnote, maybe the English translation. Like I do want the translation, you know, for me, for the other students peer reviewing, but I always try to relegate that more to a footnote or at least below, you know, the original language in text if they want to do that. And that's something I try to carry through in my scholarship as well. And I, you know, I just, I just got reviewer feedback yesterday. I always like people embrace this like nominally, but then like when it inconveniences them, then it becomes problematic, but reviewers are always like, oh, this is so, in, you know, it's a nice idea, but it's inconvenient. Just put the English in the text and put, no, you know, the original language. Um, and so I'm trying to, you know, decenter that in my publications as well. But again, running up against reviewer kind of bias and habits there. I will say, you know, I have some, you know, some reservations about like the fully translingual approach. And so as I, said, as I said earlier, like I think a lot of students coming out of, you know, Many write, you know, writing, you know, graduate programs, composition graduate programs don't necessarily have the expertise to work and serve, you know, second language writers fully. And so, you know, just reading translingual scholarship, which I think is important and I think it does a lot of good, um, isn't providing, you know, the level of expertise needed. I think you need to also draw on some of the, you know, scholarship by people like Dana Ferris as well, and, you know, Paul K. Matsuda, for instance. Um, you know, I feel like I, you know, I co-authored a chapter with Shana Shapiro on this recently. And this is, you know, it's in a collection edited by Tony Silva and Zhao Zhe. And it, you know, brought in a you know, number of second language writing and translingual scholars to, um, you know, kind of explore the divides and try to, you know, look for some reconciliation. And so Shauna and I like to embrace what we call a critical pragmatist approach in the classroom. So where I'll do things, I'll, you know, always be positioning um, language diversity as an asset, you know, looking time also you know, still teaching and, you know, prioritizing to some extent the acquisition of a stamp, you know, this kind of privileged variety of English, because I think that's what students are coming to us, you know, wanting. And then, you know, when they get beyond our classroom, they're going to be judged based on that, um, you know, across in their, you know, math classes, in their engineering classes, their science classes, and, you know, by, you know, when they're applying for jobs as well. And so 
I do provide that. You know, I, you know, I try, I'm trying more and more to embrace that labor-based approach where I'm kind of minimizing, you know, or, or grading necessarily students and not penalizing them for, you know, language variations. But um, I don't fully kind of subscribe to the, you know, to the approach that we can't teach, you know, some, some standards. But, you know, alongside that, have discussions with students about, you know, how standards, you know, have come into play and how, you know, language variety, some are privileged over others. Thanks, Todd. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.